1: Philosophy is the partner of every serious intellectual discipline. It appears when enough is known about some subject or some domain to make new progress conceivable, even though it remains unrealized because new methods are needed. So philosophers help to provide new concepts, new interpretations, new questions, to address problems that are currently unsolvable, but which we think can be solved.
2: Welcome back to the New Books and Intellectual History channel of the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. I'm talking today with Professor Scott Soames. Professor Soames, who specializes in the philosophy of language, the history of analytic philosophy, and the philosophy of law, is the director of the School of Philosophy at the University of Southern California. Professor Soames' previous books have included The Analytic Tradition in Philosophy, Volume 1, Founding Giants, The Analytic Tradition in Philosophy, Volume 2, A New Vision, Rethinking Language, Mind, and Meaning, What is Meaning, Philosophy of Language, and many more. Professor Soames' most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2019's The World Philosophy Made, From Plato to the Digital Age, published by Princeton University Press which chronicles philosophy's great achievements from the medieval and early modern eras to the present, exploring how philosophy has shaped our language, science, mathematics, religion, culture, morality, education, and politics, as well as our understanding of ourselves. Professor Soames, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, both your training and the focus of your work.
1: Yes. I was an undergraduate philosophy major at Stanford University. I then studied philosophy and theoretical linguistics at MIT, where I received my PhD in philosophy, but I ended up spending my fourth year in graduate school teaching philosophy of language in the linguistics department. After that, I taught four years at Yale, and 24 years at Princeton before moving to USC in 2004. And you mentioned my research, it is centered in the philosophy of language, also the history of the analytic tradition in philosophy, but also now more recently in modern philosophy of law, especially as it relates to interpretations of legal texts, like the American constitution. Now the book, we're going to be talking about today, reflects a rather recent broadening out that has, I think, I hope, given me a larger historical perspective on Western philosophy in general.
2: Larger perspectives on history and ideas and philosophy are what this channel is all about, so you are are most welcome. (laughs) Diving right in, I was wondering if you could share with us your understanding of what philosophy is. You write in the book that, quote, philosophers help by giving us new concepts, reinterpreting old truths, and reconceptualizing questions to expand their solution spaces, end quote. And that, quote, philosophy monitors the border, ready to plot our next move, end quote. So that is definitely a start at a definition, can you tell us in your own words, what is philosophy to you? I can tell you, yes, what philosophy
1: is to me. And, you know, it's only a start of a definition. It's not really a complete and fully precise and sufficient definition. My best beginning is that philosophy is the partner of every serious intellectual discipline. It appears when enough is known about some subject or some domain, to make new progress conceivable, even though it remains unrealized because new methods are needed. So philosophers help to provide new concepts, new interpretations, new questions, to address problems that are currently unsolvable, but which we think can be solved. Philosophers do this when disciplines are born, but they also do it as disciplines mature. As the disciplines advance, the new knowledge they achieve inevitably generates new puzzles. And sometimes this brings philosophers back into the process. On the whole, this dialectic is, I think, unending. Of course... There are some problems that mostly only philosophers deal with because there are as yet no specialized disciplines dealing with it. Some of these problems involve value, morality, and the meaning of life. Some involve foundations of knowledge, not of one or another type, but knowledge in general. And some involve the most fundamental types of Things in reality and the concepts that we can sensibly apply to them. But in addition to that, much recent work in philosophy directly engages other disciplines. We have philosophy of law, philosophy of language, of logic, of mind, of psychology, of economics, of physics, of biology, of mathematics, and more. This is how a great many philosophers today think of themselves. Philosophers of X, whatever that X may be, engage with central concepts and aims and presuppositions of X, often to a greater degree than many of those working solely in X itself. When X is an empirical discipline, philosophers of X are not much involved in gathering empirical data, doing experiments, formulating hypotheses, or replicating previous results. They often home in on the recalcitrant problems in X and... Think of ways of revising or reinterpreting basic assumptions to make new solutions possible. And the point is similar, really, in mathematical disciplines as well. So today's philosophers of X play roles that in the past were shouldered by great philosophically minded scientists and mathematicians. So, because of this, I see philosophy as a kind of on-again, off-again partner of all disciplines. Philosophers are often present at the birth of disciplines. They often articulate their aims, discuss their methods and relations to existing bodies of knowledge. Later, they return when Norms of now independent disciplines generate conundrums or dead ends. Philosophers specialize in conundrums, and they specialize in conflicts between different families of concepts. Their job is to diagnose and help resolve the conflicts and the difficulties. They are, of course, not alone philosophically sophisticated practitioners of X, have themselves always done this, and they continue to do it. Now, if we go all the way back to Plato, we see his conception of philosophy emphasized its connection to mathematics and astronomy. They also emphasized philosophy's role in understanding human nature, and the focus in human thought on objective concepts that make knowledge possible. He also talked about human action as a rational pursuit of the good, and he tried to derive normative lessons for social and political organization. Of course, his great student, Aristotle, was himself a great philosopher, was also a great scientific founder of many of the disciplines we know today.
2: I think that your book does important work in highlighting the role that philosophers do at the intersection with other disciplines. I, I confess I, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, but I think recently I've, I've come under the sway of pro-scientific and pro-mathematical propaganda and so, to be honest, I'm inclined when I when I hear about the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mathematics and the philosophy of quantum physics, say, I tend to re- attribute that to scientists and philosophers of mathematics. Those are mathematicians. But I think that is unfair. And I, and I do think that your work demonstrates the way that philosophy as a science has branched out in the modern world and, and found its way in relation to up against other disciplines and the, and the, fruitful, the fruitful outcomes of, of those relationships. Your book is, you write, quote, about the contributions philosophers have made and continue to make to our civilization. To situate our discussion, I thought it would be helpful if you could paint for us a picture of the general worldview, at least that of Greece, In the years before the emergence of philosophy. You read in your book that part of the worldview Plato saw himself as combating was that, quote, one's knowledge of the world, one's place in it, and the model for one's conduct were derived largely from imaginative identification with the gods and heroes of orally performed epic poetry. In this world, the poetic works of Homer and Hesiod were among the primary pedagogical texts. Can you expand upon this briefly, helping us visualize the world that philosophy was about to transform?
1: Yeah, I hope so. Well, the pre-Socratic culture that Plato set out to change had, for centuries, been primarily oral and preliterate. At the time of Plato's birth, uh, 427 B.C., it was slowly transforming into a literate culture. Now, in the 1930s, the great classicist Milman Perry demonstrated, for example, that for hundreds of years, the Iliad and the Odyssey were performed only orally, actually sung or chanted, accompanied by a musical instrument. Because there was no written script rich enough to capture works of that richness, they simply weren't written down. As my colleague Kevin Robb has shown, to produce a written text of a complex literary work in an inflected Indo-European language like Greek, one needs written notation for at least five vowels plus independent consonants, not just lists of fixed syllables. This was late in coming to Greece. Once in place, the script had to be disseminated, of course, put to new and various uses, and perhaps above all, taught in school. Greece was in the late stage of this transition in Plato's time. So, following Perry's work in the 30s, another classicist, Eric Havelock, in the 60s, Used these ideas to illuminate what Plato was doing. And of course, Havelock wasn't the only one. Walter Burkett, the great historian of Greek religion, speaks of epic, epic poetry as the glue that held Greek society and culture together. He says, and I'm going to quote from him the authority to which the Greeks appealed was the poetry of Hesiod and above all of Homer. The spiritual unity of the Greeks was founded and upheld by poetry, a poetry which could still draw on a living oral tradition. To be Greek was to be educated, and the foundation of all education was Homer. That's the end of that quote. Now that last sentence paraphrases a line from Plato himself in The Laws. And the line is translated, to be a Greek man is to be an educated man. Where the word educated translates a Greek word that can also be rendered or translated musical man. Children were, as Plato puts it, stuffed with Homeric verses. In the laws, he says, he says that explicitly, we stuff our children with verses. So to be a Greek man was to be an educated musical man. And that education, of course, was teaching the children of Plato's time what their history of their culture, was, what the norms of their culture were, what they could inspire to be themselves. Havelock spelled out the mindset of imaginative identification with epic heroes that goes with this. That had to be changed to make complex, evidence-based Logical and critical thought possible, rather than simply a set of narratives or story.
2: The connection of the word "educated" and musical is interesting. I, I would guess that that predates Pythagoras's work connecting music to mathematics, but it's um, but it's an interesting coincidence that uh, because of course. The discovery of mathematical relationships in the physical world in in the form of music would have such a profound impact on Plato's thought and on the future of the Western world and, and the world in general. For you, and of course for many historians, the central figure in the story of philosophy is Plato, but Plato did not emerge sui generis from the ground. Plato was raised and educated in the wake of earlier thinkers, Thales, Heraclitus, Pythagoras, Parmenides, and Democritus among others. Today these are called the pre-Socratics, and they introduced many, though not all, of the fundamental ideas that would inform Plato's philosophy. Could you please tell us a bit about the pre-Socratics and help us understand how epical their early work really was? in particular could you touch on such fundamental innovations as the move towards naturalistic explanation as opposed to deistic ones and the move to basing beliefs on evidence argument and rational examination rather than authority
1: yeah well that was really that was really the key the the pre-socratics of course lived between homer's and hesiod's times and those of socrates and plato and As I mentioned, works of the great poets were orally performed. Those of the pre-Socratics, the individuals you've mentioned, were a mix. They were often partly written in advance, though they were usually orally presented. Another difference, the epic poets evoked muses as real divinities, relaying Truths about how real gods established order in the world. The pre Socratic philosophers dispensed with muses and Greek gods. They spoke of the things that you might find in Hesiod's Theogony, like the origins and history of the sun, moon, stars, oceans, rivers, and the like, but they didn't speak of them as work of gods. And that was an important move toward naturalism. Of course, it was still far from science. There were no or not very many precise observations at that time. And with the partial exception of Parmenides, there's not a great deal of reasoned argument in which conclusions are rigorously deduced from premises. There's a lot of narrative discourse. There are interesting and arresting guesses, there's argument from analogy, all of those were common. Now, if we go to the first historian of Western philosophy, and who was that? That was Aristotle. He says that Socrates was the first one to appreciate the importance of definitions. In his metaphysics, Aristotle says, and I'm quoting now from Aristotle or the translation, Socrates was busying himself about ethical matters and neglecting the world of nature as a whole, but seeking the universal in ethical matters. And he fixed for the first time on definitions. Plato accepted his teaching, I I believe Aristotle means on definitions, but held that the problem applied not to endlessly changing sensible things, but to unchanging entities of another kind. Things of this sort, he, that is Plato, then called ideas, or it can also be translated as forms. Now, what were these things about Plato's Ideal forms. The way I put it is this. They are ways that things can be. How can things be? That can be circular, square. They can be, A and B can be identical. They can be distinct. Things can be solid, liquid, animate, inanimate, and so on. They were precise concepts needed for objective knowledge. For Plato... They are given by definitions, the paradigms of which came from Greek mathematics. You know, it's interesting that the Greek word translated as form, which became forms, of course, can also be translated as shape, which gives you some sense of the importance of geometry for Plato. Indeed, That importance carried over to the curriculum of the academy, which included number theory, geometry, and the mathematical study of the heavens, which were what? They were prerequisites for students to go on to study philosophy. Now, I think the most important precursors of Plato were Greek mathematicians and astronomers, some of whom... Thales, for example, Pythagoras, Democritus, were also philosophers engaged in cosmological speculation. Greek geometry, also number theory, including the investigation of irrational numbers, were central in the academy, which is why it became the home of the great mathematician Eudoxus. As I note in my first chapter, Essentially, all the results systematized in Euclid's Elements, the most influential work of ancient mathematics, was already known and taught and digested three or four decades before its publication.
2: Mathematics is certainly an incredibly important subject, not not even to mention influential, but... But just a fascinating, interesting, and even even beautiful subject, and it's it's one of my great regrets that it that it is not better known to people interested in the history of philosophy and the in the history of ideas.
1: You know that is that is it is a fascinating thing about Western philosophy, about Plato especially, and Aristotle, that they saw in mathematics something which had, just by its example, let alone by its results, it it, it could serve as a kind of model for other enterprises. And what makes it even more fantastic is that who else was such a great influence on Plato? Socrates. And what was Socrates interested in? I mean, he was somewhat interested in mathematics, but... He was interested in how to live a good and meaningful and purposive life. And here we have two things which seem very different from one another. Mathematics, definitions, logic, rigor, argument, and morality and the meaning of life. And they are put together as part of the same whole. It was remarkable.
2: So let's talk a little bit more about Plato and Socrates, if you don't mind. The details of Socrates' life only come to us through the writings of others, in particular Plato. So there was a question as to what degree Socrates is even knowable as an individual. That said, if you could paint a picture for us as to Socrates' contribution to philosophy as it is painted by Plato and Aristotle, with the understanding that this is impartial and we cannot know to what degree Plato contributed. And then could you talk to us about Plato, and in particular, his theory of forms? Beyond that, one important and I think crucial point that you make is that Plato sought to transform the culture he was born into, in which one's knowledge of the world was derived from works of epic poetry into, and I quote, a rationally critical one in which all knowledge was objectively stateable, logically testable, and intellectually defensible. In short, he attempted to change the culture from one based on the oral story, narrative, to one based on the written statement, objective description, end quote. That is no small innovation to transform the world from one based on the oral story to one based on the written statement. So can you please talk to us briefly about the contributions of Socrates and Plato?
1: Yes, I'll try. You're right. Uh, We don't have firm knowledge about the historical Socrates, but we can say some things about the Socrates who is presented to us by Plato primarily, but also Aristotle. And the way I see it, Socrates was responsible for three key ideas. The first I've said a word about already, the importance of definition. For Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, definition was the entering wedge for a general insistence on rigor. When Socrates asks, what is goodness? What is beauty, truth, or knowledge? He's not asking for examples. He wants to know what these things are. That is, what it is to be good, what it is to be true, and so on. It's the same in mathematics. If we ask what is a circle, we don't want examples. We want to know what it is for any conceivable thing to be a circle. We want a definition. And what we're told is something like this, a circle is the set of all points on a plane equidistant from a single point. The goal of Socratic philosophy was to extend that sort of precision, definiteness, objectivity to all knowledge. Now, Socrates' second idea was that the objectivity needed for theoretical knowledge of the world would, when we applied it to ourselves, give us the knowledge we need to discover who we are and to lead us to wisdom, virtue, and happiness. Socrates' third idea was that, we can just put it this way, very directly, personal wisdom and purpose is achievable, and it can be found through philosophy. This, I think, is illustrated by the inspiring example he said, when facing death, which I present and discuss in the book. Now, if we go to Plato, I guess you have to say the first thing he gave us was the Socrates we know, some of which may have been his own contribution. In giving us this Socrates, he articulated A conception of philosophy, which was to be the starting point for all objective knowledge of the world, later to be developed in several sciences. Second, and this is no small thing, he gave us the first European university, which combined theoretical mastery of major fields of learning with what? With self-mastery, mastery of self, leading to the wisdom needed to live a good and meaningful life. We might even say he gave us the idea of a liberal education. Now, third, his theory of the forms was his search for clear and precise concepts, with which to formulate laws explaining natural phenomena, human society, and even individual selves. He also articulated something which had not been so articulated prior to his time in Greece. And that is a concept of the mind or soul or psyche as the seat of consciousness and moral responsibility, which with proper instruction will train the will to be the ally of reason and so to master our desires. It may not be too grand to put it this way. Plato gave us a vision of truth as being there for us to discover if we acquire the discipline, the patience and the courage to wholeheartedly seek it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
2: I, I just can't help hearing you talk through this. I, I can't help still being impressed upon the relevance of mathematics here. I think the search for definitions was crucial to progress in mathematics. And yet I think as those definitions were solidified and more progress was made, mathematics also gives an impression of objects that exist independent of human intention and that are out there and discoverable independently uh, by different individuals. So I think that search for definitions and the sense that there are forms, real forms, independent of, of human creation feed off one another I also think that the sense which you brought up in relation to Socrates and Plato, that the truth is achievable and discoverable, to me also rings true of mathematics, because not too much before the time of Plato, arguably in the work of Thales or perhaps the Pythagoreans, proof, the the method of mathematical proof, is discovered or invented. And I think that impressed upon them the sense that we really can make progress here. We really can know these things with certainty, as opposed to just, you know, you hear someone has this opinion on this, someone has this opinion on this. But with mathematics and with proof, there was suddenly a window for real, real knowledge. And in your explanations of Socrates' belief that the truth is achievable, and in Plato's belief that the truth is there to be discovered, I can't help but see the influence of of mathematics.
1: There was a huge influence of mathematics. Um, And, you know, one of the things that's reputed to have been written over the door of the academy was let no one innocent of geometry enter here. So it was an enormous influence. And the other thing you mentioned that caught my ear was there are real things out there independent of us. Things like numbers of certain kinds, uh, natural numbers, rational numbers, irrational numbers. And we can define what those things are. But these are not just games in our mind, no matter how precise our minds may be. There are
2: such things. I have to confess, I consider myself a a tentative mathematical Platonist. It's hard for me to wrap my head around even a a separate universe in which the Pythagorean theorem doesn't hold, and in which you can't rebuild. And in fact, intelligent individuals would with given time, would rebuild the same. They, now they may begin in different locations within the realm of mathematics, but I, I I think that the objects being studied would be would be the same, and that 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 does lend a credence to Plato's ideas that I don't that I think has aged quite well.
1: They have, and you know, when we get further along in this interview, I hope we have a chance to say a little more about this when we talk about Gottlieb Frege and his conception of what natural numbers were. They were obviously real things of a certain kind that we could discover, we could define. And then it raises the question of what kind of things are these? And I spend half my chapter on on Frege in which I'm discussing these things on my view of what these are. They are properties, ways things can be. My former graduate students are scattered throughout the world. Being scattered is a property of no one of them. It's a property of them considered together. And similarly, when you go to a restaurant, uh, two couples go to a restaurant and they say, how many are you? and you say, we are four, well, you're, ta- you're dealing with the number four. And that four is a property of no one of you, but of all quadruples. It's as real as the property of being green or being a tree or anything like that.
2: Can you now talk us through Plato's student? Uh, And famously, Alexander the Great's tutor Aristotle. Most generally, what did Aristotle take from Plato? And what did he originate? In our correspondence, you zeroed in on three particular points. One, his idea of God. Two, his conception of morality. And three, his attempt to illuminate virtue, happiness, and their relationship to one another. Can you touch on these three briefly? I'll try. Well, of course, Plato
1: was Aristotle's teacher. And so Plato's theories influenced Aristotle a great deal. He came to have his own version of some of Plato's ideas, and he also struck out in in new directions in a certain way. For example, he had an alternative theory of the forms which became the basis for a very well-worked-out metaphysics, the influence of which was felt felt for nearly 2,000 years. It was quite an amazing work. Of course, Plato inspired a kind of grand two-part project, the first to discover the nature of the world and ourselves by acquiring systematic theoretical knowledge, and the second to achieve virtue, happiness, and purpose, by applying that knowledge to ourselves. And his student, Aristotle, basically saw himself, I think, as taking the first steps in that program by laying the foundations for the disciplines of logic, of physics, of biology, of psychology, of ethics, of political science, and more. Now, one thing that people who have read both Plato and Aristotle remark on this, Aristotle wrote these treatises long works of what we've come to think of as a philosophical treatise, whereas Plato wrote the dialogues, which were much different. And one thing I wanted to point out was that those were Aristotle's theoretical Writings, which he began as lectures in the academy. We don't have Plato's theoretical writings. He gave plenty of lectures in the academy, but we don't have them. We have only the dialogues. I would say Plato gave us a picture of what philosophy could be, a human picture, an inspiring picture. And Aristotle... Uh, filled that in with his theoretical philosophy, which encompassed or even constituted much of the natural, social, logical, and even moral science of his time. Now, you mentioned three particular achievements. His idea of God as a perfectly rational being of which the human intellect was a reflection, I think provided one of the most intellectually sophisticated and, I will say, non-anthropomorphic conceptions of a possible creator and sustainer of the universe that we've ever seen. Aristotle's God was not a person. Aristotle's God was more like reason or the ideal activity of reason in bringing things about and ordering things. It was a remarkable conception. Now, the second thing was very good too. Aristotle's conception of morality was not grounded in divine commands. It was not grounded in changing social customs, but in essential human nature. Then I think that idea remains powerful and compelling. Now, of course, Plato's idea of morality wasn't grounded in either changing human customs or in divine commands. But you really didn't, couldn't, it was very hard to figure out what, if anything, his conception of morality was grounded in. But Aristotle says, we have an essentially moral human nature. It's not that everything about us is moral, but we're born having within us the seeds of justice and fairness and compassion and love and concern for others. And if we want to build a binding morality, What will make it binding is that it's already in us, that we have to develop it, nurture it. We have to expand it, build upon it. But the source of that obligation is not from outside. It's from the individual person, him or herself. It's an amazing idea. And I I think he was on the right track. And then, of course, he, he did a lot to illuminate Virtue and happiness as complementary, not opposites, not antagonists, but on the whole complementary. And that I think was also on the right track.
2: Let's talk briefly about the Middle Ages, perhaps my personal favorite period in European history. It seems like in your analysis, Three of the main figures during this period were Thomas Aquinas, Roger Bacon, and William of Ockham. Can you provide a a brief overview of the Middle Ages? I know that's a very tall ask, so we can keep it quite concise. And the main contributions of each of these thinkers? Sure.
1: I, I too, think it was a remarkable period um, that left us gifts that have too often not been sufficiently appreciated. Now, you mentioned the three figures. Now, the first was Aquinas. What did he do? Well, he personalized Aristotle's rational but impersonal creator and sustainer of the universe. And like Aristotle, Aquinas took the existence of that creator and sustainer to be provable. But what he didn't think was provable was God's essential nature, and for that he relied on Christian theology. Now, Aquinas also labored very ingeniously to modify Aristotle's conception of human beings as being composites of mind and body to fit Christian doctrine. The Aristotelian soul could not survive the death of the body. Aquinas' soul could survive the death of the body, but that soul was not the human being. The soul of Socrates was not the same as Socrates. It was only an aspect of Socrates. And it had to later be united with the body in order to fulfill its proper function. And that's where we get the Christian conception of immortality Put into a philosophical concept is a really quite remarkable combination. Beyond that, he had far reaching views on metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and the like. But his main contribution, and indeed the main contribution of, of many of these uh, thinkers, in my opinion, was in giving the autonomous search for systematic knowledge of ourselves and the world that had been Greek philosophy, a second chance, by temporarily relieving it of the onus of finding the meaning of life and charting a path to personal fulfillment. Philosophy, sad to say, did need a second chance because by the Middle Ages, The Platonic idea that reason-based investigation of the world would, when applied to ourselves, lead to our greatest happiness and virtue was and had become exhausted. By temporarily relinquishing that existentially important second task, philosophy found its way back to advancing the theoretically essential first task. The resulting truce between faith and reason, even if only temporary, was I think one of the great achievements of Western civilization. As I say in the book, although Thomism had its rivals, the modus vivendi between faith and reason it prompted became one of the lasting achievements of our civilization. A religion-based, on a mystical interpretation of particular historical events, appealing to every social class, with an ethic of human behavior based on a vision of the meaning of life, had become linked to an epistemological system, the goal of which was to use observation, precisely defined theoretical concepts, logic and mathematics, to acquire comprehensive knowledge of man and the universe. In my view, the legacy of that display of open-mindedness would be felt for centuries. Now, two other Christian philosophers that um, I mentioned and that you, you mentioned as well, two who were rather close to Aquinas who helped along in that task were Aquinas' Dominican teacher, indeed the founder of the uh, Dominican Order, the philosophical naturalist, Albertus Magnus, and then there was the brilliant Franciscan natural scientist and philosopher of science, Roger Bacon. Bacon, in particular, uh, was marvelously interesting. I might talk about him in Chapter 2. Now, third very important philosopher and theologian was William of Ockham. Unlike the others, he kept his Christian theology separate from his brilliantly independent philosophy of logic, language, and science. What did he give us? Well, among other things, he gave us an empirical analysis of causation as constant conjunction of events of related types. And he gave us a conception of the role of explanation in science, which generated the norm known as Occam's razor, don't posit entities beyond necessity. Those ideas, which I've basically just named rather than explained, provided a great impetus to empirical science.
2: With the arrival of the Renaissance and early modern Europe, you devote considerable time to the work of natural philosophers or proto-scientists such as Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, and Newton in bringing about the scientific revolution. These figures, beyond doubt, changed the world. Could you please walk us through the contributions of these thinkers and the changes they made to our worldview and to the world in which we live? Separately, I also think that here, the question of what constitutes a philosopher what the criteria are for who can accurately be claimed under the mantle of philosophy does arise. Doing foundational work in a subject, for example, I I don't think can alone be a a criteria. I I would imagine there are mathematicians and scientists who have done foundational work who were not philosophically inclined. So, uh, and otherwise, if it was simply a matter of being an important figure in the history of the science, then philosophy could just claim the most important figures in all disciplines. So to me, the question did arise, what is it about Newton and later mathematicians like Alan Turing and Kurt Gödel that makes them qualify as philosophers and not just mathematicians or scientists?
1: Okay, a big question. Well, first off, I'll discuss uh, Alan Turing and Kurt Gödel later well, let, let's go through some historical ages and some well-known figures. I'll start with Copernicus. He was a clergyman, an amateur astronomer. And what did he do? He reconceptualized existing observations of the planets that had previously been understood from a geocentric perspective. there were some anomalies and things like retrograde movements of the planets and so on, which were very hard to explain. We knew what the data looked like, but from the geocentric perspective, it looked odd. Well, his contribution was to keep the observations the same, not to change any of that, but to reconceptualize them and put them in the perspective of a heliocentric solar system thereby eliminating certain of the anomalies and simplifying the theoretical framework. He wasn't exactly a scientist because he didn't make any significant new observations himself, nor nor did he offer causal explanations of celestial movements. He was a philosopher because he saw how we could advance our understanding by changing The theoretical framework, the conceptual framework, into which we fit the evidence that we did have. And that's a classically philosophical move. Now, Kepler and Galileo were scientists and mathematicians primarily, but whose theoretical frameworks were infused with philosophical ideas. Kepler spent years observing Morris Brilliant and wonderful observations, discovering the elliptical planetary orbits and postulating and measuring this enormously mysterious force, gravity, that is exerted through empty space, which is causally responsible for their movements. His precise observations and his causal hypothesis explaining them made him a great scientist. His willingness to abandon, or at least conceive, of an alternative to the common sense idea that force must act by contact made him philosophical. It troubled him deeply, but he did discover gravity and measure it. Now, Galileo, the scientist, of course, refuted parts of Aristotelian physics. He also removed all rational doubt about the heliocentric conception of the solar system. And of course he discovered laws of acceleration. Galileo, the philosopher, rejected gravity in favor of philosophical, kind of Greek philosophical atomism in which all force acts through contact and in which no secondary qualities like color are objective properties of objects. So he combined scientific advances with speculative philosophical naturalism. For him, this was a broad continuum that, on the whole, was of a piece. Now, moving on. The scientist and mathematician Descartes laid the foundations of analytic geometry, established the sine law of refraction, which predicts the behavior of light as it passes through media. He offered a theory of visual perception as well. Descartes, the philosopher, developed his celebrated conception of mind and advanced a program to place all knowledge of ourselves and the world on a sound foundation. Newton Newton invented the calculus and was the greatest scientist of his era. He also thought of himself as a natural philosopher, calling his great work Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematics. Although thoroughly scientific, his theoretical framework was philosophical. It presupposed absolute space and time, even though he quite well realized that all our spatial observations are of objects and movements relative to others. His genius, both philosophical and scientific, found a way of accommodating this paradox, and not only accommodating it, but using it to generate testable predictions about certain observed facts. That plus his ability to put aside our common sense conception of causal force as requiring physical contact and his willingness to let causation mean whatever it had to mean to play its role in an empirically confirmed theory were, in my mind, hallmarks of his philosophical mind. Newton's philosophical twin, an independent inventor of the calculus, was Leibniz, whose theory of reality was metaphysical rather than scientific, but whose objections to absolute space helped keep relative conceptions alive, and were in time found to be such that they could be incorporated into otherwise Newtonian systems. All of these were philosophers. Most were also scientists, mathematicians, clergymen, or theologians. Some were mainly uh, philosophers. Others were philosophically minded devotees of certain fields. I don't see a terribly sharp divide here. And the same can be said about a more modern figure, Albert Einstein. I'll start with a passage from his autobiographical essay. This is what Einstein says. Today, everyone knows, of course, that all attempts to clarify this paradox, he's talking about a paradox involving light, every attempt to clarify this paradox satisfactorily, were condemned to failure as long as the axiom of the absolute character of time or simultaneity was rooted unrecognized in the unconscious. To recognize clearly this axiom and its arbitrary character already implies the essentials of the solution to the problem. The type of critical reasoning required for the discovery of this central point was decisively furthered, in my case, especially by the reading of David Hume's and Ernst Mach's philosophical writings, unquote. What Einstein found illuminating was the gap which Hume and Mach were able to transcend between our habitual ways of thinking derived from sense experience and the concepts needed to truly describe reality. For Hume, the gap was between external objects and our sense perceptions of them, and also the gap between our ordinary concept of causal force as a palpable power and the modern concept of causation, or the more modern concept of causation as exceptionless regularity. For Mach, who was a scientist perhaps primarily, but also a philosopher. It was between Newton's absolute space and time and the concepts we need. In the passage, Einstein talks about a paradox involving light that couldn't be solved as long as absolute time and the ordinary concept of simultaneity are preserved. Here's what he was getting at. In daily life, we judge two nearby events in our visual field to be simultaneous when light coming from one impacts our ideas at the same time as light from the other. Since the distances are short or even tiny, this works well for ordinary purposes. But when distances get arbitrarily great, we face serious questions. Imagine synchronized clocks at the sites of events A and B, located at arbitrary distance from an observer O. Each clock starts when its paired event occurs. The clocks then move to O through different paths at different speeds. If the speed didn't affect their running, then an observer who knew the distance they traveled could simply check their readings when they arrived. If one traveled twice as far, but moved twice as fast, identical readings would register simultaneous events. What Einstein realized is that the clock's behavior might be affected by their movement through space. Now, if that sounds incoherent, it's probably because one is thinking of clocks as, or these particular clocks in this thought experiment as, metaphysical know-not-whats that by definition track the passage of time, which by definition exists independently of any physical phenomenon. But really, that's just an unsupported, unverified philosophical assumption. There may turn out to be no such thing as time, so conceived. Suppose clocks are physical me- mechanisms subject to physical laws. Then it's not obvious that their behavior will be unaffected by moving through space. This brings our ordinary idea of simultaneity into question. Einstein set out to replace it with a physically defined notion. Of simultaneity. So let's think about this. Let's say that for events at a distance to be physically simultaneous and so not separated in time is essentially for there to be no possible causal connection between them, for example, by light from one reaching the other. In 1905 he showed that Although simultaneity, so understood, is a symmetric relation, if A bears R to B, then B bears it to A, it's not a transitive relation. Consider events A, B, C, D, occurring in that order, first A, then B, then C, then D, at point one in space. And then consider event delta, occurring at a spatially distant point two. Event A is the emission of light at point one that travels to point two. Its arrival there is event delta. The light is instantaneously reflected back to point one. Its arrival at point one is event D. Because the transmission of light isn't simultaneous, isn't instantaneous, events B and C, which occur at point one after A, but before D, can't be connected by light to delta at point two. Since B follows A, light from B can reach point two only after delta has occurred. Since C precedes D, light from delta can't reach point one at C. So there can be no physical relations causally connecting delta at point two with events at point one between A and D. So it seems events B and C, which occur after A but before D, are both simultaneous with delta, even though B precedes C. But surely that's impossible. Since one event can't be simultaneous with two temporally non-overlapping events, one before the other, we must adjust our understanding of time. We could let the relations simultaneous with before and after be undefined for pairs, one of which is D and the other of which is any event in the interval from A to D at point one. But we could also choose a unique event in the interval and stipulate that it is to count as the event at point one that is simultaneous with delta at point two. This rule means that the simultaneity relation will be partially a matter of convention rather than a fully objective relation, though it will, of course, be substantially objective. Einstein took this option, allowing him to assign a fixed numerical value to the speed of light. This example is a window on his thinking that led to relativity theory, which I talk about in the book. Einstein's reasoning is philosophical thinking about nature par excellence. It was also a brilliant example of scientific thinking. As I mentioned a moment ago, Newton faced his own paradox regarding how observations about relative spatial positions could possibly justify laws presupposing absolute space. I haven't really described that paradox here, But I do in the book, along with his arresting thought experiment that he used to resolve. Kepler and Galileo also faced paradoxes about gravity that could only be resolved by rethinking our notion of causality. So, I mean, in brief, this is my answer about the great scientists. They engaged at crucial points in challenging fundamental conceptual assumptions that seemed initially to be impossible to give up.
2: If I could just briefly restate or tell slightly differently something that you said, I, I find this image very helpful in understanding some of these seeming paradoxes of, of light and time. If, if one thinks of a clock not as, you know, the object with the arms, but thinks of it as a, a piece of light bouncing up and down between two mirrors Yeah. Um, from the perspective of the person holding that clock, it ticks up, down, up, down, up, down. From the perspective of someone apart from them, if they're moving, the light doesn't just go up and down. It goes down into the right, up into the right. So it traces out a greater distance, Mm -hmm. but we know from, physical experiments, and also from Maxwell's equations, and also from Einstein, that light travels at a fixed speed. So the fact that the light travels different distances, but at the same speed, indicates that something, something must give here. And what Einstein's revolutionary idea was, was that it's actually our conceptions of time and simultaneity. That is what must give, not at these seemingly paradoxes of of light and time, Einstein's new conception of of space time as a single object is more fundamental than the Newtonian fixed conceptions of fixed space and fixed time.
1: It is, even though prior to this, it seemed inconceivable.
2: Einstein is, without a <laughs> doubt, one of the one of the triumphs of philosophical thought and of thought experiments. If if he didn't exist, I would be skeptical that such could be accomplished um, really with largely my understanding is he he really did largely think some of this through it he thought of the thought experiments and then he found the mathematics to yeah. make them rigorous as opposed to doing the math and these coming out of course it was a little bit of both but he he really is a testament to the power of of thought experiments and the ability to think through to think through problems. Moving on, you cover the British empiricist philosophers, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, David Hume, and Adam Smith. Without question, these thinkers transformed large swaths of the world, and certainly the entire world as we move into the 20th and now 21st centuries. Can you talk us through their innovations? I, I I will say a little.
1: They uh, Locke and Hume had a, a foot in two camps: a normative camp and a scientific camp. All the philosophers of the of, at that time were deeply uh, influenced by the progress of science, and the British empiricists, Locke and Hume, uh, the most prominent wanted to extend, ultimately, the reach of science to the mind. And so they wrote treatises on the nature of human understanding and gave empiricist theories of mind, which were very important. But it's probably more in the normative area that Locke and Hume and Hobbes and Adam Smith really made earth-shaking contributions. Um, Basically, they were pursuing the task of advancing our ability to live good individual and collective lives, which of course, along with advancing theoretical knowledge, was the other great concern of Western philosophy. So from Locke, we get a theory of limited representative government constrained by natural rights, Hume adds a theory of morality based on innate values plus moral conventions arising from beneficial voluntary social practices. The founder of classical economics, Adam Smith, authored his own philosophical moral sense theory and worked out its implications for economic organization of societies. There are also others that you don't hear much about, like John Witherspoon who converted philosophical ideas into practice. Witherspoon was a Scottish clergyman and follower of the philosopher Thomas Reed. He came to America to be President of Princeton and head of its philosophy, history, and English departments. He was a member of the Continental Congress, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a teacher of five members of the Constitutional Convention. In Philadelphia in 1787. He was the teacher of one president, one vice president, three Supreme Court justices, 28 United States senators, and 49 members of the House of Representatives. On the whole, the impact of these thinkers on the world has been incalculable. The 17th and 18th century philosophers gave us the basis of modern economics and the theoretical foundations of constitutionally limited government. Protecting natural rights, that combination led to the greatest expansion of liberty and prosperity that the world has ever seen. When The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776, the average lifespan in the UK was about half of what it is today. Median income was a tiny fraction of what it is now. Disease, malnutrition, poverty were widespread. Education was limited. Medical knowledge and facilities were primitive. Men worked from dawn to dusk until the day they died. Well, women cared for children, cooked, washed, canned, stored food, kept fire going every day without electricity, indoor plumbing, central heating, or modern conveniences. All of this just to survive. Now that's changed, not just for the Anglosphere, not just for Europe, but throughout most of the world. And these contributions, which I haven't said much about what they actually were here, but which I do talk about in the book, we're central uh, to bringing this about.
2: So this gets us through the first four chapters of your book, and your book is 14 chapters long. What you do in chapters 5 through 14, and what I think makes your book such a unique contribution to the literature, is that you move the discussion into the 20th and 21st centuries. Can you give us a few examples of the contributions of philosophy to the 20th century, focusing perhaps on rational choice and speculations on liberty, justice, and the good society? I will be asking about modern logic and the digital age with my next question, so maybe we can hold off on discussing those for now.
1: Okay, you're, you're asking now mostly about chapters 8 and 11, which discuss the science of rational choice plus political questions involving liberty, justice, and a good society. I'll start with a connection between rational decision theory and classical economics. Adam Smith's invisible hand argument tells us that voluntary transactions in competitive markets are exchanges in which knowledgeable agents give up something they value to gain something they value more. If both parties know how how much the outcome is worth to them and how much they are giving up, each will, on average, improve his or her condition. Thus, absent unforeseen effects on third parties, as we might put it, capitalist acts between consenting adults should raise aggregate social utility or welfare. Next, we generalize this to all means ends actions. Think of decision makers as asking two questions. First, how likely will a given action succeed in getting the result I aim at? Second, how much will getting that result increase my well being? A simple calculation then allows one to compare different options to maximize expected utility. What is that? The value aimed at discounted by the probability that an action will secure it. If we are good at assessing both what our well-being consists in and the probability our actions will secure what we aim at, we should be good expected utility maximizers. Rational decision theory makes this explicit. The theory starts from a very simple idea. It takes actions to result from beliefs and desires. We try to achieve desired goals by performing actions we take to be efficacious. The propositions, we believe, represent the state we take the world to be in. Our desires rank possible outcomes of considered actions. We try to make the best use of our limited information to bring about the results we most desire. The theory spells this out without tracking the thought processes we use to make decisions in real time. The theory is an idealized model of rationality in choosing actions that have the best chance of advancing our interests given our present state of information. It therefore can provide rational norms for means-ends reasoning. The theory counts everything one values, not just money or economic goods, as contributing to one's total utility at a time. It defines the contribution each makes to one's total utility in terms of one's disposition to accept or reject simple trade-offs from which numerical values can, in principle, be abstracted without unrealistically attributing those calculations to the agent. The same can be said about implicit assignments of subjective probabilities to propositions. It's all abstracted from dispositions to accept trade-offs. We know we don't explicitly engage in these calculations whenever we act, so no realistic theory of action as maximizing expected utility can require that. Ideally, the theory allows us to read off utilities of agents and their subjective probabilities from propositions uh, from their behavior, while also allowing us to identify cases in which their behavior violates the norms. The theoretical task of explaining how to do this was partially successful, even though implementing it can be daunting. There are also inherent and fundamental limitations to it, plus some remaining open questions. Still, this generalization of classical economic thinking is now prominent in many discussions of economic, social, and institutional behavior. The foundation for it was brilliantly laid down and expressed in mathematical form by the young Cambridge philosopher, Frank Ramsey, in 1926. In Chapter 8, I walk the reader through that. That discussion is supplemented in Chapter 11, where I discuss recent philosophical contributions to liberty, justice, and good society. There, the contributions of the philosopher and Nobel Prize winner of economics, Friedrich Hayek, is compared to the contributions of another towering 20th century philosophical figure, John Rawls, plus one of our 21st century leaders, Jerry Gauss. The combination of these partially supporting, partially competing contributions gives us a brief critical summary of the intellectual foundations of the modern capitalist welfare state plus the latest strategies for improving a state which for all its faults is a massive improvement over the systems that preceded it. I also provide a compressed explanation and critique
2: of the thought
1: of Karl Marx.
2: Okay, so on to tech and the digital age. Essentially, much of this begins with the invention of modern logic by the German philosopher, mathematician, Gottlieb Frege. Can you quickly walk us through this history, how Frege's invention will, over the coming century, give birth to the modern computer? I I have to confess, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, and I have read fairly widely in the history of mathematics and yet I find the role of logic here somewhat impenetrable. I've read a history of logic, and I just, I just can't wrap my head around it. I, I think I have a better understanding of calculus than I do of symbolic logic and how it makes possible the digital age. So what is modern symbolic logic, and why does it make all the difference?
1: Well, I'll try to say a few words about it. As you mentioned, in in, in 1879, um, Gottlieb Frege produced a system of logic that is now called the predicate calculus. And the expressive power, what you could represent and reason about in that system, actually dwarfed all previous systems. Why did he do this? He did it because he wanted to answer two philosophical questions. First, what are numbers? In particular, natural numbers, one, two, three, four. And what is mathematical knowledge, especially arithmetical knowledge? He answered that natural numbers are properties of a certain sort, ways for things, or as I put them, pluralities, to be. And he answered that mathematical knowledge is logical knowledge. For that idea to work, he needed a logic powerful enough to define natural numbers and to prove the axioms of arithmetic from those definitions, plus the laws of pure logic. The method could then be extended to theories in higher mathematics by reducing them to arithmetic, which would then, of course, be reduced to logic again. What is it to reduce one theory to another? To reduce theory A to theory B, we define the vocabulary of A from the vocabulary of B. We add those definitions to theory B and derive the axioms of theory A from those of B plus the definitions. So all theorems of A become theorems of B. Frege's vision was to do this step by step reducing all mathematical theories, except he made one exception, geometry. Reducing all of them to pure logic. It gave a kind of philosophical answer to the question, what is mathematics anyway? Okay, it's a beautiful plan. It couldn't be completely carried through. But two pieces remain. First, the logical system became the basis for what we call symbolic logic today. And second, that logic can be used to reduce arithmetic, plus a great deal of higher math, to an extremely elementary mathematical theory called set theory, and that in itself has been a boon to mathematics. But now let's look at Frege's other gift. What exactly is symbolic logic? It's an extremely simple abstract language, plus a definition of what logical consequence is, and a system of proof guaranteed never to allow one to derive a falsehood from a truth, no matter what domain of objects the logical language is used to talk about, no matter how the names, the predicates, and other non-logical symbols are interpreted. The system of proof is based on the forms of sentences one starts with. So in principle, the rules can be followed, as we might say, mechanically, without requiring any knowledge of the subject matter of the sentences. For B to be a logical consequence of A is for it to be impossible for B to be false if A is true. Because any way of interpreting the vocabulary in A that makes it true, thereby makes B true. The proof systems always, that we come up with, always allow us to prove B from A if B is indeed a logical consequence of A in that sense. And it never allows us to prove anything that isn't. A logical consequence of A. Very good. Given this, systematic searches for proof, e.g. that the value of a certain function at a given argument is a certain number, can be used to do what? It can be used to compute functions. So chapter six in my book uses four theorems to lay out how this works. The first theorem, due to Kurt Gödel, is that all logical consequences C of a given sentence S in the Frege-style logical system can be deduced from C by rules of the system. Theorem two, due to Gödel and Alfred Tarski, <coughs> relies on assigning to each symbol and each complex of symbols in the language of arithmetic, a single natural number to serve as its secret code, you might say. Theorem two says there is no formula in the language of arithmetic that is true of all and only the codes, the secret codes, of true arithmetical sentences. Okay, that's a kind of uh, interesting sounding thing. It sounds a bit paradoxical and it's based on paradox, but it's quite consistent and we can see what it means. Then comes theorem three, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. It shows there is no consistent set of axioms for arithmetic from which all and only true sentences of arithmetic logically follow. Any axiomatization that proves only truths leaves infinitely many truths unproven. As I explained, there's a very close relationship in the book, there's a very close relationship between theorems two and three. Theorem four, due to Alonzo Church and Alan Turing, is that there is no effective decision procedure, which when given a a set S of sentences in a Frege uh, logic type system and another sentence P, will correctly tell us, in finitely many steps, whether or not P is a logical consequence of S. There are procedures that will always answer yes, when P in fact is a logical consequence of S, and they will never give us a wrong answer. But theorem four tells us that sometimes when P isn't a logical consequence of S, the proof procedure will never stop looking for a proof. Moreover, there is no possible way of improving on this. Thus, the function, as we might put it, that assigns yes to the pair of S and P whenever P is a logical consequence of S, while assigning no when it isn't a logical consequence of S, is what? It's not a computable function. Some functions can, in principle, be computed. Some, we can prove, cannot be computed. The mathematical theory of computable functions was bound up with these theorems. What made the digital age possible was the formalization, Alan Turing, selected Improving Theorem 4, which I just uh, mentioned. It involved logical formulas thought of as instructions for a very simple machine dubbed by Church a Turing machine. These, These were just imagined machines defined by certain logical formulas. They operated on one and only one thing, sequences of ones and zeros, since ones and zeros could be used to model closed or open electronic circuits, actual machines could be built to compute the functions computed by Turing's mathematical model. It turns out, by the way, that as far as we can tell, and people have been investigating this for a long time. All functions that can be computed by any means at all can be computed by a Turing machine. And remember, Turing machines are the things that provided the models for actual computers. That's how philosophical logician mathematicians gave us the digital age.
2: Our last two questions dealt with what are essentially new intellectual enterprises, rational decision theory, which has become embedded in social science, and modern logic and the theory of computation. Are there other 20th century disciplines that philosophy has influenced?
1: The best case, I think, is the science of language. Although historical linguistics has been around for a long time, and aspects of linguistic sound systems like the Great Vowel Shift have been studied. Theories of natural languages as integrated systems in which syntactic structures mediate mappings between sound and meaning is not yet 75 years old. As I say in chapter 7, human languages result from interacting subsystems governing first, the production and perception of sounds, second, word formation processes, third, syntactic principles by which words are organized into sentences. Fourth, interpretation of sentences on the basis of the meanings of their parts. And fifth, the flow of information carried by discourses consisting of many sentences. Each of those domains is a sub-discipline of the new science of human language. Two of those systems, the study of principles for interpreting sentences and identifying information carried by discourses grew directly from philosophical logic and philosophy of language, and those two philosophical disciplines continue to make key contributions today. We don't have enough time here to go into detail, but I'll make two observations. The first concerns the role of Noam Chomsky. His work in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was the driving force initiating something that could be called the natural science of of human language. Although some work that he did was technical, the driving force was his philosophical vision of what a science of language could and should be. Now, I never agreed with all aspects of his vision, but I deeply respect his achievement, and I regard Noam, who is one of my teachers at MIT, as among the most important philosophers of the last century. My second observation is that even if one rejects, as I do, his interpretation of theoretical linguistics as essentially a branch of cognitive psychology, one must agree with him that our language is among our most important and also most psychologically revealing products. I should also put in a word about psychology and cognitive science. Philosophers like Noam Chomsky and Jerry Fodor, who was another one of my teachers at MIT, plus many others played powerful roles in moving psychology beyond Freud and psychoanalysis on the one hand, and Skinner and behaviorism on the other. At the end of chapter nine, I say a little about the cognitive and computational theories that replace them.
2: Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle introduced the question of morality and the quest for meaning and purpose into philosophical discussions over 2000 years ago. What new philosophical questions and answers have recent philosophy brought to the questions of morality, virtue, and the meaning of life.
1: That is, or at least maybe, contemporary philosophy's greatest challenge. In chapter 12, I offer what I take to be important lessons for interpreting legal texts, like the Constitution, that can be gained from insights in the philosophy of language. I also outline a workable, Uh, originalist theory of interpretation, with roots not only in philosophy, but also in legal history and practice. In chapter 13, I draw on work by the distinguished social scientist James Q. Wilson, plus echoes of Hume and Hayek, to articulate a conception of objective morality, which, though only partial is, I argue, capable in proper social and institutional settings, of becoming more universalistic. In chapter 14, I do my best to update Aristotle on the relationship between virtue and happiness and the challenge of living a meaningful life today. Although I've given some recent lectures on the objectivity of morality and the meaning of life, I'm afraid we don't really have the time needed to go into that further here today.
2: Professor Soames, thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you would be willing to share with us?
1: Well, right now I'm thinking about issues I'll be discussing in an undergraduate course I'm teaching with the chair of economics at USC. My part of the course starts from the material that uh, I put in chapter eight on on the use of decision theory to extend classical economic rationality to broader areas. Now, this has become a kind of pressing issue. The classical defense of free markets is based on a model of economic rationality that according to behavioral economists and cognitive psychologists is empirically unsustainable. Because individuals appear not to be consistently rational economic actors. It is alleged that maximizing individual and social utility requires activist policies to shape individuals' often irrational social and economic decisions. (laughs) I myself find this a bit dangerous (coughs) because big government and large private institutions are not themselves rational expected utility optimizers for individual citizens or stakeholders. It's doubly dangerous because activist policies to shape the social and economic choices of individuals threatens liberty, which is intrinsically valuable over and above its value in advancing economic well-being the habit of exercising freedom and shaping one's own destiny and taking responsibility for one's successes and failures is, I think, necessary for one's human development and one's ability to perform the obligations of citizenship in a self-governing republic. In the course, I try to go further. I argue that, in fact, the need to maximize expected utility is no threat to freedom, because there is no such thing as utility in the abstract all-encompassing sense used in traditional arguments, both in favor of free markets and in contemporary arguments in behavioral economics against free, uh, free markets. Nevertheless, I try to show or argue that there are genuine objective values. These include limited but potentially measurable objective conceptions of human welfare. They also include natural rights arising from conditions grounded in human nature that must be fulfilled if we are to reap the enormous benefits of systems of social cooperation. The task is to combine limited objective welfare, not the be all end all of life, but one of the goods in life with natural rights in a framework that allows for constrained competition between different moral, economic, and political values to achieve socially acceptable outcomes. Frank Ramsey's brilliant grounding in 1926 of individual utilities and subjective probabilities was a very good start, but it's really only the beginning of what will be a much more multifaceted enterprise that has to be pursued in something like the way that Jerry Gauss suggests in his book, The Tyranny of the Ideal*, which I discuss in my own chapter nine. So that's my next step.
2: Professor Soames, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Well, it was a pleasure for me.
2: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation I've been speaking with Professor Scott Soames about his 2019 book The World Philosophy Made From Plato to the Digital Age It's a wonderful book If you are interested in the subject matter whether an expert or a lay reader I highly recommend it The theme music for this episode and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and in Intellectual History Channel of the New Books Network. See you next time.